But somewhere between total control, which is an illusion, and total non-control, which is also illusion, is our agency. You know, God has given us the ability to act and to choose and to make decisions about our future. Somehow, in ways that we don't fully understand, that meshes with his sovereignty. But, uh, but what I need to know is that I have a stewardship and a responsibility to God to make the best use of my time and talents as I can. Uh, it won't be perfect. God's going to interrupt my plans from time to time. Other things are going to interrupt my plans, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean I just have to kind of throw up my hands, walk off the field, and say it's pointless. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. I am the director of Insight for a Living's Reframing Ministries, and I am so over-the-top excited to introduce my guest today, which is Michael Hyatt. Michael, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, Colleen. Great to be with you. I am so thrilled. Well, I have a little list here to introduce you to our audience. I don't know if many of them don't know you, but you've been named by Forbes as one of the top 10 online marketing experts to follow. You have two New York Times bestsellers, Platform University and um, Living Forward, the book that we're talking about today. You are a blogger that has a following all around the world. You know more about electronics, I think, than anyone I've ever listened to. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> and you're also married to Gail for 37 years with five daughters, four son-in-laws, and eight grandchildren. How's Christmas at, at your house? Very busy. Yeah. It is. Well, what we're going to talk about today is reframing how we live today so we can get to where we want to be throughout our life. And Michael's book, Living Forward, I don't know if you can see it, if it's on the screen or not, get the book, get the book. It's, it's so fabulous. So whether you are a mom at home, whether you're a businessman, want to work on balance in life, or just stuck and need some motivation to get going, Michael, you're going to be the expert in telling us how to do that, all right? I'll do my best. All right. Um, when I first opened the book, Michael, I had... I read the story of the drift, and I want you to fill us in on what it was like to be lost and adrift. Yeah, so when Gail and I had been married about 10 years, we were way overdue for a vacation, so we decided to go to Hawaii. But we were pretty broke at that point in our life, so we couldn't afford to do much. And what we decided to do was to take snorkeling lessons from the hotel, which were free. So we went out the second day after the snorkeling lessons, and we went to this beautiful, amazing cove, and we began to swim. And we were so preoccupied by everything that we were seeing under the water, the coral, the beautiful fish, all the stuff that you see in Hawaii when you do snorkeling. It's incredible. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing. And uh, we didn't really look up for a while. And when I finally pulled my head up out of the water, I just, I, I shrieked because we had got, we were caught in a riptide and we had drifted really far out to sea. I don't know how far it was, but the hotels looked like little postage stamps off in the distance. <laughs> and Gail came up. Fortunately, we had, had drifted together, and we had a boogie board, so we were able to swim back really, really hard, and we finally got back after about 45 minutes of hard swimming, and until last year, 
we never snorkeled again. It was just too traumatic. Yeah. But it really reminded me, or was a great metaphor for how most people approach life. They get distracted, preoccupied with all the stuff that's going on, and they don't think intentionally about their life, and they end up at a place that they would not have chosen had they been intentional. And for some people, it's their health. For some people, it's their marriage. For some people, it's their career, but they drift far afield from a place they would have chosen if they had been intentional about it. Right. And the saying goes, if you fail to plan, then plan to fail. Totally. So in your book, you give us a roadmap <clears throat> along with some fantastic resources, by the way. I did take my test um, on living forward. I got a 45. I'm in the frustrated place, <laughs> which is why we need to chat. But your book chapters are acknowledging the drift, which what you just talked about was exactly that. Understanding the mission, appreciate the benefits, design your legacy, determine your priorities, chart your course, dedicate one day, implement your plan, keep it alive, join the revolution. Okay, break that down for us a little bit. Some of the favorite parts, some of the harder ones. Yeah, well, the book is really organized around three questions. This is kind of an easier way to think of it, I think. And the first question is the question, how do you want to be remembered? And I think when we really raise the question about legacy, and that's what that question is about, uh, it's easy to think that, you know, Queen Elizabeth has a legacy and Barack Obama has a legacy and all kinds of famous people have legacies, but not just little old me. But the truth is, all of us are building a legacy one day at a time. We're going to be remembered. And I remember that when my father-in-law died back in 2004, he was a full colonel in the Air Force and we had this amazing full military uh, funeral with the jets flying over and all the rest. But the thing that I remember the most is that we went back to my in-law's house after that funeral and we had all the extended family there. And like for an entire day, we looked at old pictures, we watched old video, and we just reminisced on what he meant to us. And the truth is he was this amazing godly man that had left an incredible legacy in his children and in me as a son-in-law. And I think that for most of us, we're not intentional about that. And so to think, you know, almost fast forward, it sounds a little bit morbid, but to think if you were at your own funeral, you know, if you could watch this happening and you see your family in the front row and maybe your friends on the rows behind and maybe your coworkers, how would they remember you? How would you want them to remember you? You know, are they remembering you as somebody who's too busy for them, somebody whose head is always in a device, somebody who can't even come to a dinner conversation without being preoccupied and really being present somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Or do they remember you as somebody who was fully engaged, who was empathetic, who listened well, who consulted with them and encouraged them and inspired them? And the good news is we're not dead yet. So, <laughs> so we still have the opportunity to shape that legacy beginning now. And it's going to take intention, and it's going to take some planning, as you saw in the book. But the good news is we can shape a legacy that we'd be proud of, that we'd be proud to pass on, and it makes us ultimately better stewards. You know, I just read this morning a statistic that about 60% of the people around the world say it will take a near-death experience for them to become intentional in planning their life now. Isn't yeah. that incredible? It is incredible. And I had a similar experience because back in... I guess it was about the year 1999, um, suddenly I found myself uh, working in a new job. I was at Thomas Nelson Publishers. I was a divisional manager and the division was in really bad shape. Of 14 divisions in the company, it was dead last on every single metric. The good news was 
I couldn't mess it up. I could only make it better. But I really worked hard along with my team for about 18 months. And unfortunately, I ended up in the, the ER three times thinking I was having a heart attack. Thankfully, I wasn't. It turned out to be acid reflux and I got it under control. But the last time, my cardiologist looked me square in the eye and he said, look, he said, you're not having a heart attack. That's the good news. The bad news is this acid reflux is being caused by your lifestyle and by your wow. stress level. And wow. I can give you something to mask the symptoms, but if you don't change your stress level and make some serious changes in your life, you're going to end up in the ER and I might not be able to help you. So that's what I got serious about life planning and realized that I was drifting and it wasn't going to end well if I didn't make some changes. So did you start to implement changes immediately? Well, I, I did. You know, I, it didn't all happen immediately, but one of the first things I did was I got in touch with an executive coach, Daniel Harkavy, who's the co-author with the book. Yes, yes. And that's where I first met Daniel. And Daniel said to me, buddy, we've got to create a life plan. And he's the first person to have ever walked me through that process. And I found it so revolutionary to just yeah. think intentionally about what kind of life do I want? What does my relationship with God look like? What should my relationship with Gail look like? What's my relationship to work? Because up until that point, you know, I worked like crazy. Work was basically everything. And then in the sort of the leftover margins of my life, that's where I really gave attention to these other things like family as I could fit it in or my health, which was almost never. But everything changed as a result of that life plan. And I got back on course. Wow. So it is good to know it doesn't happen all at once because at times when I was reading the book, I felt a little bit overwhelmed Yeah. and thinking, well, because here's why. When my children were young, I read every book I could find. Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. We made a family flag. We had all these goals and then boom, I have a diagnosis of a son that has disabilities. And then over the years, I would try to implement plans, but the the emergencies that would happen if he had a seizure, if he uh, couldn't go to school mm. because of his immune system. It, it would change everything. Talk to the person who has some unpredictable realities in their life. Yeah, you know, this is uh, a common problem. Obviously, we don't have total control of our lives. There are a lot of things that happen that, um, that we can't control. Things like you just mentioned that come into our life and interrupt our life and the best laid plans are quickly uh, thrown askew. And I hate but, that. Yeah, I, I, I want to be in control. But, but somewhere between total control, which is an illusion, yes. and total non-control, which is also illusion, is our agency. Mm. You know, God has given us the ability to act and to choose and to make decisions about our future. Somehow, in ways that we don't fully understand, that meshes with his sovereignty. But, uh, but what I need to know is that I have a stewardship and a responsibility to God to make the best use of my time and talents as I can. Uh, it won't be perfect. God's going to interrupt my plans from time to time. Other things are going to interrupt my plans, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean I just have to kind of throw up my hands, walk off the field, and say it's pointless. No, we flex. It's, it's kind of like uh, my family and I drive from Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, uh, down to Destin, Florida, almost every fall for uh, our kind of our fall vacation. And sometimes when we get to Birmingham, there'll be construction. And so the path that we had laid out, the plan that we made in Nashville based on what we knew then, doesn't quite work out like we planned. We have to take a detour. 
And that's a good metaphor, I think, for how life is. Just because you hit a construction zone or you hit a detour doesn't mean you quit and go back to home. It just means you adjust and flex and make plans. And one of the things we try to do in the book is not make a life plan this big, cumbersome document. Yes. Yes. It has detailed action plans because that's not how life works. It's right. got to be simple and flexible. And that's what I think uh, we set forth in the book. Well, and I love the examples that you give in the end. And then you also talk about the five to 15 page document to be read every day as you begin out loud, which we know now with neurochemistry, that creates certain neurological pathways in the brain that then reinforce our behavior, which then create more motivation. Totally. So it's, it's an incredible system when we look at wellness. Like you have several posts about getting better sleep and how to eat better. Yep. And we've even done genetic studies, DNA studies. What kind of vitamins do we absorb? How can we be the best possible right. for whatever the Lord wants for us? Now, give me an example of something that may have interrupted your life plan that you could not change and had to reframe, in other words. You had to say, you know, I like I started seminary and I wasn't able to continue because the needs at home. Okay, so a good example of that is back in the early 90s, I started a business. It was a publishing business that I owned with my business partner, Robert Wagamuth. Yes. And we loved it. I mean, the business grew like crazy, uh, but the problem was we were growing faster than our cash. And as it turns out, it takes cash to run a business. <laughs> And so essentially we went bankrupt. Um, in fact, we were too broke to go bankrupt really because all of our assets were pledged to the bank. And so we just had to shut down the entire business. Now it would have been easy for me in that situation to just kind of walk off the field and say, I guess I'm not destined for business or I'm lousy at business. I could have invented an entire narrative around those facts. And, and believe me, I didn't bounce back Im immediately. Resiliency was a process, but Today, I look back on that, and I think if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I wouldn't have gone on to become the chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson. I wouldn't have been able to start the business that I own and enjoy today because I learned lessons in that experience that, first of all, I wouldn't want to repeat, let's be honest. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I wouldn't want to trade them for anything because it's always in the hard stuff, in the adversity, and I hate this, but in the adversity where we learn the most important lessons that we can apply later. So the cool thing is I get to choose, you know, and the story that I tell myself about that experience is what really determines how I see the future. And that, for example, could have, I, I could have said to myself, I'm not good at business. I guess I'll just give up. You know, maybe I'll do something else, or maybe I wouldn't start another business, or maybe I wouldn't have become the CEO of Thomas Nelson. But because I saw that as something giving me valuable experience, wisdom, then I was able to use that in a way that benefited me and hopefully the people that I led. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with how this was built or how we built this. It's an NPR podcast that I listened to. And it talks about, it's for entrepreneurs and leaders, and not one story, the gal who invented Spanx, the, um, the person who invented Lyft, the person who has invented so many things that we use today, they have all hit the skids at some point and then bounced back and become even more passionate about what they end up doing. Well, you know, the important thing about that, Colleen, I think, is that it really develops something that's critically important for us as leaders, and that's empathy, uh, yes. to become more self-aware. And, 
you know, I've worked with a lot of famous people, mostly in the publishing business, and one of the most insufferable kinds of persons is the person who's never failed. The person who yes. seems to have been handed everything on a silver platter and they just had this screaming success, overnight fame, that's not really good for us because it amplifies who we are and if our character's not really grown, it could be a really negative thing. And I just, uh, there's a pastor in our city that I just learned the other day has had a marriage of 20 years, uh, three sons, and just walked away from all of it. And he had this sudden fame, and I'm convinced just wasn't able to handle it, didn't handle it well. So adversity is good for us. Well, what's interesting, I did come across a Huffington Post, um, I know, an entrepreneurial post today as well. And she says, when you're starting anything or when you're, when you're setting out to accomplish as a leader something, you're going to fail. Yep. And in fact, my dad gave a talk at Wheaton College when my niece was graduating. And he said, I'm going to talk on failure. And she looked at him and said, Bubba, are you serious? And he said, yeah, because not one of these people are really wanting to fail, but it will be the best gift for them. That's right. It's true. I mean, until we hate we, it, I hate it. But until we learn how to process failure, there's not really a way forward. And our past does not have to equal our future. But for so many people, they get defined in terms of their past. And so we've got to have a bigger why that's in the future to really process that past and really be able to move forward. And that's, again, one of the things we try to do in Living Forward is help people think about the future. In fact, I was, I was talking to my uh, trainer at the gym this morning, and we were just, he was reminding me of an old metaphor I'd heard. And he said, well, you know, nobody drives through their rear, rear view mirror because it's so small and you're going backwards, but the windshield <laughs> in the front of you is huge. Yes. And I think that's a fitting metaphor for life, too. You know, we've got to be yes. able to reframe what we experience so we can use it in moving forward. And it does it does cultivate tools that never would have ever been cultivated. And resiliency and empathy are two of the other things that were listed in this article that mm. I read this morning. Um, you mentioned in the book 13 Virtues that Benjamin Franklin wrote at age 20. I couldn't believe that. He's, he talks about temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality. I can never say that word because I don't like to be frugal. <laughs> Industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. When you hear those character traits, because you just referred to character, which I think is the backbone and bottom line to a successful business or a successful life, what qualities do you focus on when you hear that list? Well, one that I didn't hear in that list, and I don't have that list in front of me, but one of them that I think is so important for leaders is integrity. And one of the things that a life plan does is it helps you get more congruence between your external life and your interior life. And I've seen so many people where those get out of whack and they're kind of one thing to the public and they're another thing at home when they're with oh, just boy. their family and the cameras are off. But true integrity, true integration, where there's... Yes you know, an integration between the outer and the internal uh, is, is what happens when we're living our values. And you mentioned Dr. Stephen Covey. I, I love how he defines integrity. He contrasts it first with honesty. He says, honesty is when we make our words line up with reality. Integrity is actually just the opposite, where we make our actions line up with our word. So that if we say we're going to do something, then we do it. If we make a promise, we keep it. If we sign a contract, we fulfill it that's true integrity. And I think it's particularly important 
uh, as Christians and Christian organizations that we do what we say we're going to do, that we yeah. keep our word. You know, that was something that when I was growing up, that was just kind of how it was. You know, you could shake hands on a deal and people kept it. But today, uh -huh. even if you've got a signed contract, it doesn't necessarily mean the other party's going to live up to their end of the bargain. Visit us at reframingministries.com for all of Colleen's interviews, articles, recommended resources, and more. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and receive our free five-day video devotional series where Colleen provides pointers for navigating daily life and struggles. integration part of this and having a life plan does force you to really integrate where you're going but with where you are now. In fact, I was just thinking of Tuesdays with Maury and how hmm. as he met with this younger college student that he had mentored for so long, Maury had his funeral before he died to see what it would be like because he wanted to celebrate his life. So that's kind of what you're talking about. It's celebrating your life as you go along. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, as you were reading that list from Benjamin Franklin, you know, another thing I thought about was just priorities. You know, values are a way to express our priorities. And the second question that we deal with in the book is what's important to you? And it's really a question about, about priorities. You know, we've talked about uh, how do you want to be remembered? But what's important to you? And most of us know what's important to our spouse or we know what's important to our parents or we know it's important to our institution or maybe culture at large, large, but what's important to us? And getting clear on my priorities has been incredibly helpful as I try to navigate through all the various demands of life. And, you know, God is obviously number one for me and probably for most people that are listening to this. But surprisingly to a lot of people, I put myself as number two. And the reason for that is uh, very similar to when you're flying on an airplane and they tell you that in the unlikely yes. event of turbulence, put your own oxygen mask on first before you attempt to uh, fix it to somebody else. Because if you're passed out, as it turns out, you're not of much use to anybody else. <laughs> True. And so I think an appropriate level of self-care is critically important. Not to be selfish, but so we can serve other people. You know, if I'm healthy, if I'm emotionally connected, if I'm socially integrated, I'm going to be able to serve my family much better than if I'm nursing old wounds that haven't been dealt with or if I'm out of shape and don't have the energy I want to be able to be available to them. So an appropriate level of self-care is critically important. But once we have these priorities, it can be hugely helpful in navigating uh, the decisions, small and great, that happen in life. Uh, can I tell you a story about that? Absolutely. Okay. So back at about 2008... When we were right in the teeth of the Great Recession, I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson, and we had sold the company to a private equity company, and they didn't bank on, and I didn't bank on, the fact that we were going to hit the Great Recession. So it was turbulent times. You know, it was uh, all hands on deck, and it was really difficult. I finally decided after about a year that I, I just absolutely had to get away and take a vacation. So Gail and I had planned to go to Colorado for a week way up in the mountains, deep in the woods, and just... Uh, nurture our relationship and frankly do a lot of sleeping. Okay. And on the way, I was actually going through Dallas where we were connecting and then going to Denver where we would drive up into the mountains. But in Dallas, I got this text from the chairman of our board. And he said, hey, um, I think you've left the office. You're on vacation, but 
We're going to come to Nashville on Monday, and we'd like you to be there. And I mean, my heart sank. This was a vacation yeah. I had given them plenty of warning on. Everything was buttoned up back at the office. And I needed this. My family needed this. My wife needed this. And so I, I said to Gail, I said, man, I can't believe this. And she said, honey, look, you do what you need to do. I'll support it. I'm with you all the way. And so I said, okay. So I wrote him back an email and I said, look, my staff will take care of you, but I'm not turning around. I'm going on to Denver. Wow. I'll talk to you when I got back. And I was only able to do that. I was only able to find the courage to do that, even though, by the way, I was scared. But I found the courage because I had a clear set of priorities and my family came way above my job. Now, what was really interesting is that when I got back to Nashville, a little over a week later, um, I asked my CFO and the team, I said, hey, what was that meeting about? And he said, honestly, nothing. He said, it could have been handled via email, but I, I would have scuttled my vacation plans, a time of much needed rest, a time of real connection with my wife, except for the fact that I had a clearly delineated set of priorities that kept me on track. Okay, now I'm gonna throw a monkey wrench in this here. Okay. <clears throat> because I think, that's, I think that's fantastic, the way that we should be living. Um, what happens when two of your high values collide? Because as a caregiver, first of all, the statistics mm -hmm. are they have a seven year, they die usually seven years earlier. They have very, we're very poor about caring for ourselves. We have more heart conditions, probably because we have more adrenal stuff going on inside because sure. we're always revved up. Um, and raising a son with autism is like being on the front line of, of war 24-7 is what they have said. So there's some PTSD in there. Okay, I value self-care, but I also value having to care for someone who can't care for himself. Sure. So... So be the magician and sprinkle the fairy dust on that. <laughs> well, first of all, I empathize with that. I, I know that's got to be incredibly challenging. My oldest daughter, Megan, who works in our business, has two young boys that she adopted from Uganda who were se severely traumatized um, as young boys, as babies. Really? And so they still carry that with them. And so yes. their life is often interrupted by phone calls from school or yes. something that they just didn't plan on. And even down to a young mom who has a newborn infant. I think there's a couple things that'll help us there. One is, I think, to recognize that there are just some seasons that are harder than others. And yeah. we've got to be, self-care is uh, being easy on ourselves, not holding us to a higher standard that is really warranted at this season in our life or in our situation. Hmm. But again, it kind of goes back to the fact, you know, like we were talking about earlier, just because you don't have total control doesn't mean you don't have some control. And sometimes it may take some brainstorming with a spouse or with some friends or people in a, in a network of people who are in a similar situation to say, look, this is hard, but we want to be yeah. around for the long haul. And is there a way that we can help one another so that, and I've counseled young couples with this, you know, with sleep strategies where, you know, maybe tonight you're going to sleep in a different room and your husband's going to take care of the baby or, and maybe you'll reverse it the next night, or maybe you'll trade off on the weekends with another couple. Uh, but I think if we can strategize it and make it a priority, we may not be able to get all the self-care we wish we could if we didn't have all those responsibilities, but I'll bet that we could get more uh, than we would otherwise if we just drift into it. And I think stuff like Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour, The Four our work week and then the 20 minute workout. I mean, we we're all over yep. learning. How can we do this more effectively and efficiently? Because 
our time is limited, frankly. Totally. Um, let me go to, that's really interesting. I did not know that about Megan, and I, I would love to hear more about that as well, and your it, grandsons. I tell people I'm an African-American grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> that works, why not? Um, when you have, one of the things I love are the tools that you provide in the book. You have livingforward.com ideal week, and you talk about creating your ideal week, and then buildingchampions.com, which is also another resource that you offer yes. to, to find out where you are now. So there's really no excuse, is there? There's really not. And I think one of the great things about the assessment that we offer on the site at livingforwardbook.com is, um, is it helps you just sort of assess where you're at today. Because, you know, somebody said to me 20 years ago, you need to do a life plan. I would say, yeah, right. But if somebody said to me, where are you today in relationship to where you want to be? Hmm. That's a much more thoughtful question. Because then I start looking at the various areas of my life and I look at my health and look at my marriage, look at my social relationships, look at my work, my avocations and all the rest. Then all of a sudden I think, you know what? There's probably another level that with a little design, with a little intention that I could get to. And so that's the, that's the beauty of the assessment. The ideal week tool is kind of cool because it, it basically has the presumption as you're putting together this tool, what if I had 100% control of my life? How would I like my week to look? Now- I would be in heaven. <laughs> I know, it'd be awesome. But, and, and none of us have that kind of week, but right. when we have that kind of week on paper and we share it with the people that help schedule our cal calendar and the people that we interface with, then we can work toward that ideal week. And so for example, one of the things that's on my ideal week is I make time first thing every morning for prayer, for Bible reading, for exercise, for some of those things that for me at least, if I wait till later in the day, um, those things are gonna get hijacked by something else. So in the ideal week, I map those first thing and I really try to do those so that if nothing else gets done, even if I'm interrupted or distracted, I'm gonna get the most important things with regard to self-care done first. Okay, now on your blog you have, um, I love how practical your blog is, Michael. And Thank you. I love like top 10 mistakes, um, de top 10 mistakes derailing your goals, three forces that shape character, which I think are fantastic. How quick, how to quickly create a killer blog post. I have yet to master that one. How do you <laughs> write one so quickly? Um, but you also have one on setting up camp in the discomfort zone. What have been some of your discomfort zones and how have you learned to set up camp there? Well, I would say that almost everything I do now that is in what I call my desire zone, where passion meets proficiency, where I really love it and I'm good at it, are things that were initially in my drudgery zone, things that I hated. But I learned over time as I invested and got better at it that I could learn to love it but I had to go through that discomfort zone first. And the yeah. discomfort zone is where all the really great stuff happens. It's where your prayers are answered. It's where your character is developed. It's where you realize your dreams. But most people want to stay in the comfort zone. And for me, like public speaking is a good example of that. I mean, the first time I ever spoke publicly, I remember I was 18 years old. I was a summer missionary in Galveston, Texas. And I was serving this pastor kind of as his to shadow him. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm going out of town this weekend, and I want you to preach on Sunday. And I said, well, I've never preached before. And he said, not a problem. He said, you'll do fine. See you later. 
And oh my <laughs> gosh, I was so uncomfortable. I don't think I threw up before I spoke, but I almost did. <laughs> and so uh, public speaking took a long time for me to get comfortable uh, with doing video like this or doing interviews. That was initially in my discomfort zone. And I think that everything that ends up being worthwhile, I don't care if it's learning to take care of kids or be married or anything else that's so rewarding, you have to go through a period where it's outside your comfort zone and you have to be willing to get comfortable with discomfort. Yes, I agree. And that goes along with being willing to give up the illusion of control and say, yes. you know, I serve a sovereign God yep. who's shaping my character and I'm going to... I'm gonna do my, the best that I can today, but at least I have a framework to work with, which is the life plan. If you were talking with someone, okay, let's say myself, who's at the place of frustration, but wants to be productive, working on a tight budget and, and family needs, we have a blended family, five kids. Um, how do you get from there to from frustration to a feeling of, I can do this, to get through the discomfort to where I want to go? I think it begins by pushing the pause button and just saying, wait a second, let's think about the kind of life that we're creating. Because if we don't do that, we're going to drift to a destination that we wouldn't have chosen. So let's just try to find a time when we can have a really meaningful conversation. In fact, when couples are doing the life plan, we encourage them to do it separately but then come together for probably one of the most powerful, meaningful conversations they've ever had. Because in the context of life planning, it's basically a guided way to dream about the future yeah. and to revive those dreams. You know, what yes. were those dreams that you had 20, 30, 40 years ago that maybe because of the pressure of life and the circumstances of life have gotten buried like a beach ball being held underwater and it's time for them to come out. And to think about, okay, what would I like to help, have for my health? I mean, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 61 years old, but today I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. That didn't just happen. You know, that, that right. takes some work. But it took imagining it at first for me to say 15 years ago when I first started life planning to say, actually 17 years now, I said, um, you know what? I want to be in great shape. I, I don't want to get to my old age and be debilitated because of physical limitations. I mean, certainly there are things that happen we can't control, but to the extent that I can control it, I want to control it. Yes. And so I think to push the pause button, to get away, like we talk about in the book, to dedicate one day and to just think through this structured outline that's a life plan and yes. envision what you want in all the major life accounts, whether it's your health, your most important relationships, your vocation, or whatever, and then dare to actually write those things down. Um, there's a very great saying that I love that says, thoughts disentangle themselves, passing over the lips and through pencil tips. Yep, my dad says it all the time. Yeah, it's such a great, I probably got it from him. But <laughs> it, you know, it's one of those things that um, clarity, to meet people that have clarity is very rare. Hmm. And there's something magnetic and incredibly attractive to other people when we have clarity. And the thing about life plan, the thing that it does is it gives us clarity for our own lives. And it's amazing to me that three times in the Gospels, Jesus says to people, what do you want me to do? And they couldn't answer it. And for most of us, we can't answer it because we don't know what we want. 
And so, and then we get upset with people when they don't meet our expectations. That's right. You know, it's like you expect us to read your mind. No, I mean, no. tell us. That's right. So, define clarity. I think I think clarity is to have a vision of the destination. You know, where is it that I'm okay. going? Okay. So, for example, let's just let's just take marriage. Uh, great marriages don't just happen. You know, it's not like uh, you just got lucky and happened to marry the right person. Uh, the truth is, for Gail and I, we we're initially attracted to one another. And then we found that the very things that attracted us to one another eventually annoyed us about one another. Right. And so then we, you know, like opposites attract, but then they end up repelling. And then we had to come together and realize that there's enormous strength in our differences and <laughs> how we're different. So, you know, I think it's, you know, it's that process of learning to understand one another and to begin to work on it over time so that you can develop something that you really want in a relationship. And so for us, we're absolutely clear about what we want. You know, we want to speak well of one another all the time. We want to be people that notice the good in each other. You know, it's easy to catch people doing things wrong, but to catch her doing something that I love and to affirm it I really believe that we get more of what we acknowledge and affirm and the clarity to know that that's what's going to create, create and grow a great relationship is very helpful. You know, my husband is super good about doing that. And I've heard you um, driving to and from taking Jonathan on, on to a school. You and I have driven to work so many times. You didn't even know that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I awesome. know people have said that about my dad too. So I'm like, I can't believe I just said that. But um, in listening to you talk about Gail, you affirm her painting, you affirm her giftedness, you affirm her flexibility. I mean, I've really heard you speak highly of her, and I've admired that. Well, you really have listened. That's awesome. I'm an, I'm an information junkie, Michael, <laughs> and well, I just want to grow always. I mean, I just, I really I can do. see that. Well, Gail's very much the same way toward me. You know, she's been my biggest cheerleader, uh, my biggest support, you know, we just went out for Valentine's, uh, as so many people did uh, a few days ago, at least at the time we're recording this. And I just said, you know what, honey, you're my very best friend. There's nobody in the world I'd rather spend time with than you. And That's when you cool. think about what would it take to find a best friend, you know, what would you like in a best friend? You know, somebody that listens to you without judgment, somebody that encourages you and inspires you and really understands you. Well, all, the, all you have to do, if you have that clarity about what you wanted a best friend, then why don't you be that best friend to your spouse? You're really talking about, um, uh, like Socrates, and, and even now with Ryan Holiday and all that he's writing, you're talking about evaluating who you are and knowing who you are mm. and your identity so then you can be who you are and, and then create good boundaries, but also yep. know, know your limits. I mean, it's just a healthy way to live, but it does take time. It well, does. Um, Michael, are you speaking? Tell me what you're, what you're doing. You're doing Platform University, coaching and mentoring. You're working, you know, in so many different areas. But how can people get a hold of you and connect with you and learn more about this? Yeah, the best place is at michaelhyatt.com because on my website is everything else. But I have two major courses and a membership site. So I've got five days to your best year ever which is where we get really intentional about planning the next year. And what if you could make the next 12 months the best 12 months of your life? And I've done that every year for a lot of years, and it just keeps getting better. And then I How have do you do that? I want to learn. 
Well, Why you should you, know? you should do the course, absolutely. And then another thing that we do, uh, another course we have that I'm really excited about is called Free to Focus. And the whole premise is how to achieve more by doing less. And we just did a live workshop in Nashville with a bunch of folks and walked them through the process. And I think it's really a transformational approach to productivity because what, I, what the premise of it is, you're probably doing too much stuff you should never be doing at all. Mm -hmm. And if you could eliminate those things or you could automate them or you could delegate them, you could really focus on the places, again, where I call the desire zone, where you really add the most value and the things that you love and the things that you're really good at. Hmm. So you really do, you really have honed in on this, haven't you? I have. This, I, I believe this is what God has called me uh, to be and to do. So yes. Hmm. Well, you know what, Michael? I love what you're doing. And Thank I you. so affirm it. And I just, I can't say enough about it. And I want to talk to the audience who is watching or listening. Please connect with Michael at michaelhyatt.com. When you if you Google his name, you're going to get about 40 pages of things on you, Michael, which is wonderful. So michaelhyatt.com, and um, this is your life, which is your podcast, and it's yes. in the top 25 yep. around the world, downloaded, I think, 250,000 times a month or something like that. It's incredible. Um, how? Last question. How can we, as individuals, encourage others to do a life plan and to really stick with it? Well, I really believe that the best way to encourage anybody to do anything is to do it yourself. You know, mm -hmm. model the behavior you'd like to see in other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was growing up, there was kind of this saying about parenting that was, you know, the parent would say, don't do as I do, do as I say. Oh, that yeah. Doesn't, that doesn't really work. I, I like what the Apostle Paul said, that he would never presume to speak of anything except what had, God had accomplished in him and through him. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is my goal. And I think that's the way to be the most influential is walk your talk. So if you want somebody to do a life plan, do one and then just talk about the benefits that it's brought to you. Well, and I think you're exactly right. You just mentioned the Apostle Paul and I think about the book of Philippians and his attitude and here he's writing from prison and he's writing on joy. I mean, that is such, that is so not what we would expect, but that really is part of character and part of um, living intentionally. It so is, talk about a reframe. Yeah. Talk about a reframe. He reframes so many things. It's incredible. Yes. So thank you, Michael, so much for being here today and for spending time talking about this. Thank you, Colleen. My pleasure. It's been great. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. Enjoyed today's podcast? We'd love to hear how you've been encouraged in our website comments and our podcast reviews. If Reframing Ministries has been helpful in your life walk, we'd be honored to have you partner with us in prayer and in financial support. We operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. Would you consider giving just $10 a month to help caregivers and their families receive resources full of help, hope, and healing? You can partner with us at reframingministries.com give. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for future discussions with Colleen and world influencers. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.